So this is a conversation I had with Isabel Neo, a fascinating uh, woman with very interesting things to say about China, America, bias, culture, and what any of those terms even mean. What the heck does it mean in 2019 when you say someone's American or someone's Chinese? Isabel, besides having just very interesting things to say about media, journalism, geopolitics, culture, and so on, and we get to all those and more in this podcast, we cover a lot of ground. But she is the uh, co-founder of Loud Murmurs, which is a Chinese-language podcast that touches on pop culture. They'll go into feminism, they'll go into Orientalism, they'll go into uh, really interesting topics while keeping it both light and heavy uh, at the same time. So if you're someone who can understand Chinese or you're trying to learn and you want a really um, insightful and deep take on something like Mulan or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, or Killing Eve, I can't recommend, uh, recommend that show enough. Besides being a co-founder there, Isabel's also a co-founder of Chinese Storytellers, which is a great newsletter that compiles some of the best, most brilliant, and most interesting takes on China and uh, related topics in an easy-to-access newsletter. So I highly recommend subscribing to that uh, if you can. That's in English. And uh, she also works at Quartz um, in terms of putting out journalism and media. So this is a really interesting uh, conversation in terms of we talk about bias, we talk about media, we talk about hip-hop. We're going to cover a lot of ground. If you like what we're doing, um, you can check out our own podcast, which is the Arts of Travel podcast. We have a big backlog of fascinating chats. You can also, of course, check out our YouTube we put video interviews on there. We put various content on there. I'm really proud of a lot of the videos we have on there. And finally, when you're traveling to China and you want to do something interesting, it could be meeting a journalist, meeting a rock and roll musician, doing something unique, check out what we're offering at AsiaArtTours.com. But for now, let's get to our chat with the witty and interesting Isabel Neal. I hope you enjoy. So the first question is just sort of, 
um, a bit about your background. Is there anything, without being hokey, is there anything that's sort of important about how you grew up that shapes who you are now? Um, I'm more left-wing because I had really left-wing parents. So is there anything growing up about where you grew up or how you grew up or what you were taught or what you came to learn yourself that sort of informs the projects um, that we will be discussing today, the projects you've started or uh, work on? Sure. Um, so I think one thing that's really formative for me is that I grew up in northwest of Chi the northwest of China, the Xinjiang province, which is a Muslim autonomous region is what we call it. And then from there, I my whole family moved to Shanghai, a very kind of different coastal city. And from there, I've lived in different cities, countries. Um, I counted, I actually haven't stayed in the same place for longer than um, 10 years. That's, that's pretty much it. And so I think I have been an outsider my entire life and I have to constantly adapt to a new environment and that really has shaped how I look at my work um, and also the passion the passion projects that I've been doing outside of work have always been trying to bridge different cultures. And for the projects you're working in where there are um, media groups or organizations where the focus is on China or there's a very definitive fo focus on getting Chinese Americans or Chinese born journalists working together to figure out how to tell Chinese stories in a new way. Is there a focus within it on sort of inter-China diversity? So when you when you set up Loud Murmurs or when you set up um, the China newsletter, um, China's Chinese storytellers or China storytellers? Was there a focus when you were founding these, or, or I guess co-founding for both, um, where you're like, all right, we're not only going to tell diverse stories about China, but I want someone from Dalian, or I want someone from Yunnan, or I want someone from Xinjiang. Was that part of uh, the project as well? Um, that's a good question. I think actually in terms of diversity within China, there's still a lot to improve. Um, I don't think the geography is that important. It is important whether you're from first tier city or second tier city, north or south. But more importantly, I think most of the people who are working abroad, studying abroad, we're all of a pretty similar uh, socioeconomic background. We're all middle class, pr probably born in the city. So in terms of that, um, I still want to keep improving. I, I really want to have people who did not, uh, for example, share my socioeconomic background from China. But unfortunately, because of, you know, you, you need to have you need to be able to afford to study abroad in order to now be working here. So that's, that is something I want to continue to do. Are there programs that they are, are, are set up or being set up where, um, Matt Taibbi talks a lot about this. He's my catch up. He's, you know, everyone has their heroes in journalism or writing. He's one of my heroes because he talks a lot about, well, look, you know, we have, we, we've done a, a decent job in newsrooms of diversifying them. And you and I can talk about, you know, why that's very important for, for covering China. You know, if you have a staff of all, you know, white people covering China, there's going to be biases, even if they don't mean to be biased, that are going to sort of reproduce themselves uh, invisibly. But is that something that you're hearing more about, not only, you know, within your organization, but others of, of also trying to address class? Um, yes, I think I have started to hear more about it, to stop focusing only on the stories about China coming out of big cities, because that's really pretty limited. Uh, for example, right now, a story I'm working on for Quartz focuses on the agriculture sector of China, and that leads you to 
places like Hebei, Baoding, Xuxui, and that's something you don't see every day in international coverage of China. Yeah, you definitely. I mean, it's more fun to go to Shanghai. Um, not for me. I, I I do not fit into Shanghai. I'm more of a Yunnan uh, guy, I think. But um, so class is something that can be invisible. Um, one of the things I've really liked about your projects, and in particular, I got to tell you, and this will sound really weird, not in a scary way, but in interviewing a lot of the journalists in Hong Kong, it really makes you much more aware of feminism because Hong Kong, in particular, some of the leaders of coverage, people like Mary Hui, Isabella Steger, Elaine Yu, you know, they're these, these women who go into these sort of extremely dangerous situations um, between the protesters and the Hong Kong police and are absolutely fearless. But they've also, um, and, and we can talk about this uh, maybe as the flip side to this question, but they've been doxxed. Like there's a real nasty strain of patriarchy that um, in particular Asian uh, journalists, Asian female journalists um, have, have had to endure. And, you know, that was shocking to see that, you know, I understand these women are facing physical violence, but, you know, to be faced with this constant barrage of online misogyny was something I had no idea existed until I started talking to these female reporters and seeing the, 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 the uh, activism against them they had to endure from sort of uh, patriotic uh, mainland media or uh, patriotic media within within China, patriotic meaning supportive of, of the People's Republic of China. Um, so we'll save that for a part B, but for a part A, you know, you, you've gone to really good schools, you've worked in very prestigious newsrooms. What are some of the biases that you had to face and what were some of the things that you sort of had to learn to articulate once you started um, the two organizations you're predominantly working on? I mean, I know you work at courts as well, but what are some of these invisible biases for uh, Asian journalists or Asian American journalists or female journalists that, that you've encountered that only now people are starting to speak out about? I think just um, going like taking a step back, I worked in China as a reporter too, at Caixin, and then I came here. I think this is a process of learning how race works in this country, because I never thought of myself as Asian before coming to the U.S. You know, who identifies themselves by a continent? That doesn't make any sense. So I came here, learned all the stereotypes that are associated with Asian people, Asian women particularly, and then it's a learning process and you start internalizing it, you start to think, wait, is that true about me? Is that how people view me? So does it matter if it's not true or not? And you start to, this is a very kind of long and kind of painful learning process, um, but particularly as an, a Chinese female journalist, one type of bias that I constantly see is being treated as a news assistant. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that if you're a foreign correspondent, if you're working, if uh, if you're, you're you have a Chinese news bureau in China, a lot of the reporting is actually done on the ground by young Chinese women who have the language ability, have the courage to act as kind of an in between. So they both have they face threat from getting called to have tea with authorities, and on the other hand, they have to try to help their colleagues who may not have enough, uh, you know. They don't have their Chinese is not good enough to actually talk to any sources. So, so because of that role, I think even though I have never worked 
in that role because I worked for a Chinese um, organization in China. I still sometimes feel like I am being viewed as a news assistant while I'm here. Um, not really at my current role, but previously, just in the past years, I have definitely felt that. And so you have to kind of, you have to kind of decide. I want to be helpful, sure, and I understand that I can maybe、um, contribute in terms of fact checking, helping you get to better sources. But at what point am I doing this? Am I being taken advantage of because of my cultural background? So is that common, where it's this invisible practice of? I mean, and I, I've heard, I hear murmurs of this from time to time in elite newsrooms, where you know, like the fact checker is doing all the actual work. Is that common in newsrooms、uh, that cover China, where you would have this sort of a liaison who's doing all the work but gets none of the credit? Um, I want to say it's not doing all the work and getting none of the credit. It's some some of it is not on the news organizations itself. It's because China has a very strict has very strict regulations when it comes to news. News making, news reporting,、um, and so there are times when the foreign journalists just cannot do the work,、um, and then so they have to rely on their news assistants. But the news assistants can't get bylines because of the law, because of Chinese laws. It's not that, for example, the New York Times doesn't want to give them bylines,、uh, and some of it is to protect them. But the end result is that they're doing more work and they're not getting enough of the credit. Within the Western organizations, are there biases that? Um, journalists are starting to speak out about、um, in terms of having a very difficult. What what would those look like?、Um, I think re- in recent years there's really been a lot of discussions around the use of the term fixers、uh, and this idea of parachuting a journalist into a foreign country without knowing that much about the context and then relying on so-called fixers to do do a work to do a piece of、um, journalism. So the fixers themselves. Are in many cases they are journalists, local journalists who just don't have the platform, don't have any、uh, connections to to that, so that they can publish themselves in these pre- prestigious international outlets. So their work as fixers, and now we're really starting to、uh, pay attention to whether that practice is really fair. Why don't you just then、uh, work with these freelancers to do the story, as opposed to flying someone in and then. Relying on the local journalist, and then you know having a piece published under the foreign correspondence byline. I really think as newsrooms become more international, as because we're now in the digital media age, our audience is also more international. People are really starting to question this、um, tradition of having foreign correspondence paired with a fixer. And for、um, women specifically, what are some of the biases、um, that you have encountered that? Are starting now to be sort of reformed within、uh, media organizations. Is it okay if we go to the doxing part now? Yeah. So I think the、um, gender-based attacks on journalists is actually pretty real, and it's very it's it's not re- it's not new.、Um, especially women journalists working outside the U.S. and freelancers are particularly really vulnerable. And we're just starting to pay attention to this, and to me, it is also kind of eye-opening when the doxing of a lot of my friends,、um, someone made this collage <laughs> of all of the Twitter profile photos,、uh, I think thirty or forty profile photos of、um, people who are not necessarily Chinese, but they look Chinese, or this person thinks they're Chinese, and had this collage made.、Um, I don't think that 
act itself scared anybody, but it really shows you there's this, um, um, it's just, it's, it's not only creepy, but also clearly racist, you know what I mean? Like they just assume that these people are, are Chinese and they're covering China, therefore they must be, uh, they must be biased, they must be, they must only, they, their success comes from their race and gender and not their actual ability. So that was very disheartening to see. My understanding of the doxing, another component of it, was that they sort of accused these women of being careerist and also of sort of that women's sexuality in China is, is increasingly, as, as scholars like Lita Hong Fincher have written about, been sort of a point of control or contention for the state and sort of for patriotism, where in these doxing attacks, what they were saying is, oh, these women must have married white men. Um, and that was, I mean, that was terrifying to see. Um, I don't know if there's anything intelligent to be said about that, other than is that sort of attention you think that, you know, Lita Hong Fincher has written about the Feminist Five, obviously your work, where you're making really wonderful media to make inroads to a Chinese-speaking audience. Is there pushback to some of this sort of misogyny that... that um, emerges at, at these very intense uh, clashes or, or points of contention about nationalism. I guess what I'm asking, long story short, is there's a lot of sexism that you can see when you start to study the Hong Kong protests. And I'm just wondering if that is something that is, is being pushed back on in any meaningful way within Chinese language media or you think through actions of individuals like yourself. Um, I know that there's definitely a lot of pushback within in mainland China. There's a pretty, I want to say, pretty vibrant but pretty nimble campaign to fight gender discrimination and sex and sexual violence, violence against women, um, that started around seven years ago, and it's led by a group of uh, women in the Guang, uh, Guangdong province, including Liang Xiaowen, who's now here. So I really, it's, it gives me a lot of hope that even though they faced a lot of challenges. Um, back home, they are now moving this movement here uh, and they're having some success. Recently, Liang Xiaowen was um, interviewed on Patriot Act on Netflix, talking about China's very battered Me Too movement and how it's not, it's not dead, it's, not, it's, it's, just, it's just surviving in a different form. And, and it is getting a lot of su support in a pretty small circle of China scholars and feminists here, but it is slowly expanding its influence. Did you get any sense of why within these attacks in Hong Kong, they made a point of attacking gender? Why were they only going after women? Why weren't the, the male reporters also being doxxed? <laughs> I mean, I, I also, part of it is I think a lot of women journalists are doing better work. They're more visible, they're more out there. And of course, their gender attracts attention because you don't associate young women being on the street um, in the face of violence. So that alone draws a lot of attention. But also, it's definitely just just sexism, right? They, th they assume that they're successful because of their gender. This is nothing. I just want to say it's nothing new. It's it's I. It's kind of frustrating that it's now being only now that it's, it's being talked about. What would what were the some of the historical lineages that are obvious to you that um, would help people better understand this and, and get caught up to speed? Um, for example, here in the U.S., there's this idea that 
a lot of the anchors on TV you see on TV are Asian women because they are easy to look at. They appeal to white men, and that's why they are the anchors on Bloomberg. They're the anchors on CNBC. So there's a pretty long history of that, and there's some truth to that, right? That's the sad part. There's some truth to that. And so, what are some good examples of? Obviously, what are you trying to do in your organization to to push back on that? Things that might be obvious and some things not so obvious. Uh, my organization is doing a pretty good job at supporting women. For example, when that doxing thing came out, um, the people in my newsroom reached out to me to ask if I need any support, and also just constantly uh, lifting up the journalists, the female journalists who are doing the work, having them speak. Um, uh, speaking, speak in media about their work, just giving them the credit that they deserve. And uh, yeah, just, I think, mm, what's being done in my news organization about that? Mm, yeah, I don't think that's a very good answer, but but um, my newsroom is pretty, pretty female <laughs> in general. Yeah, so I just, I don't think that I think just offering a lot of support, being told it's okay to feel bothered by this, because that's another thing, right? A lot of these journalists, they don't want to say that they are bothered by doxing. Uh, maybe they aren't, but I think it's 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 a good idea for news newsrooms to establish that it is okay to be bothered. If you need help, we are here to support you, to offer training on um, digital security um, and you know just emotional help at all t- times if you need it. Someone was talking to me about Chinese media or media in general. And, I, you know, I think that a figure like, let's say, Bernie Sanders is interesting or a Me Too movement is interesting because what existed before these sort of figures were, let's say, very loosely. We're not being, you know, we're not in a Harvard seminar at the moment, but hegemons. There are these sort of unquestioned realities that this is just the way things are. And the only way you can break those is to ask questions that sort of pulls apart the the loosely knitted threads that holds this reality together. Sanders does that in a way I agree with. I'm not asking you to concur with me, but I I like a lot of his questioning of economic hegemons and sort of the the hegemon of how uh, systems such as healthcare or the military are set up in the U.S., me Too was, a, was another questioning of hegemons I really liked, where it was something that really pulled at these threads of why is this the way that women need to or need to be perceived in order for career advancement? Why is, in any way should this be normal? Um, and this might be lower stakes, it might be higher, I don't know, but when it comes to China, what are some of the hegemons we see in terms of coverage that that organizations like you or activists that you respect are are trying to pull apart. So Kiki Zhao's article has had a deep impression on me that she wrote recently. I know in China Storytellers, another uh, female journalist, I'm blanking on her name, but she she was in The Nation writing a very uh, Shen Lu uh, related to Kiki Zhao's article about like, what the hell are you talking about of like Chinese people think? What, what does that, what could that even mean in a nation of so many diverse voices and, and backgrounds? So could you tell us just a bit about um, some of the hegemons you've encountered that you maybe see your role or activists or journalists you respect? Your role is to ask questions. Why is this how everyone thinks? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, 
Yeah, so one of the goals of Chinese storytellers is to sometimes push back against the very common traps that China coverage falls into. For example, we published an op-ed after the Tiananmen anniversary. We uh, criticized the practice of Western journalists holding up a picture of t the Tank Man picture to, in Tiananmen Square to ask people, do you know what this is? Do you remember? Can you tell me? And if people say, well, I don't know or I don't remember, they assume that all oh, these people have forgotten history. So that's the kind of really simplified uh, way of thinking about China that we want to challenge because, like you said, it's such a huge country and uh, there's the language barrier, there's this trust, there's the problem of uh, people's trust in journalism in general, but of course also Western journalists, that we need to do extra work in order to get through that and to get at what people are actually thinking. Well, maybe for, for me, it'd be curious to know a bit about why Shen Lu's article was something you felt so so deeply about. I, I, th I believe you mentioned it on Twitter. It's given some prominence on, on storytellers. Yeah, I think she's just trying to point out that it's hard to get people to tell you what they actually think about it and, and how censorship works. It's, it's very complicated. It not only asks people to censor themselves, but also to question their self-censorship. It's very... Um, it's just really complicated and it, it doesn't help when a journalist who hasn't spent time to build up trust with the sources to just hold up a mic microphone and say, tell me what you think about Hong Kong. As what someone tells you in public might be very different from what they say to their friends in private, and, and that still might be very different from the actual, what they actually think about. So to, to try to say that, um, use a quote and say, this is how Chinese people think about Hong Kong is just so not only simplified, but also can be misleading. Mm -hmm. And is extremely insulting, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah, in, in a way, yes. And uh, to ask to be treated like an individual it, in itself is a privilege, and I understand that. And a lot of times people in China just don't have that privilege, especially in um, international coverage of China. Mm -hmm. And one other thread that I saw you get visibly not angry, I'm not going to say what your emotion was, but you registered a very strongly worded critique. And it was a critique of Vice. Vice had apparently gone to Xinjiang and was shooting about the uh, issue with uh, Uyghurs uh, living under fear of the, the state-led campaign against them. And you, you said in this article that these people were not sort of treated as individuals. They were sort of treated as props. I guess is, is the quickest way to, to sum up how I interpreted your, your Twitter thread on this issue. I'm wondering uh, for Xinjiang, um, and then maybe we can close on this section with, with Hong Kong, what are some of these biases or hegemons that you found frustrating? What was it about this vice article that, that led you to issue a, a rebuke? Um, I think the reporting itself, a lot of the issues that they draw attention to are very, very important and are undercovered uh, because of this really diff because of the difficulty to get access. So I think the work itself is important. What I didn't like was their journalistic practice of going there pretending to be tourists and then putting their sources in danger. Um, and people have pointed out to me that, oh, those Han people on the train, they're fine because they're voicing support for the government. But I don't think that's good enough of an answer. How do you know? You know, and and I think as journalists, even though we are 
this is a profession, and so we need to have professional. We need to have professionalism. We're not activists. We're drawing attention to these very important problems, but we have to do it in a very professional way, and that includes informing the people that what you're doing is news gathering. That includes making sure you protect people as much as possible. For example, in our own coverage of Hong Kong, we blur people's faces when we think there is even a small possibility that they will get in trouble for appearing in the video. So I just think they didn't take enough.、Um, they didn't take enough care. And that really frustrates me. Is it something where at times、um, China or Chinese protests or individuals within China or Hong Kong they're sort of seen as actors in a larger play? Hong Kong, something that concerns me, and that I've pushed back when I've done little interviews on sort of more left wing podcasts. I'm a lefty. I'm very nice though to liberals. So. <laughs> Lefties or liberals are always welcome on my show.、Um, when I was, you get all these questions when you talk to more left-wing outlets of, well, they're waving all these flags, and you'll say to them, you know,、uh, Wilfred Chan's done great work on this, where he'll he'll say, here is a here is a pan of a rally of like twenty thousand people, and here are the two hundred or you know twenty at times people with flags. So stop putting these people front and center. So something I wanted to ask because I felt this, and you can tell me I'm I'm incorrect, and I, I'm fine leaving in moments where my guests say you're wrong on my podcast. But、um, is it something where you think at times media will cherry pick stories to fit their narrative? So they'll say Joshua Wong's the leader, right, of Hong Kong, the protest, and they'll go, and you'll see on Twitter then people go, no, this is a leaderless protest, or they'll say, oh, they're asking for you know independence, and then. People go no, like stop. That what? What are some of these、um, ways where, if I wanted to be a careful reader of media, what are some of these、um, traps? Sometimes I can fall into of coverage that is trying to almost steer me a certain way. And and do you have any thoughts on how to to be a more nuanced consumer of things like a Hong Kong protest? So I'm not just following a narrative that is, to be honest, at at times seems very cherry picked. Yeah, I I definitely agree with you. And what you just said, basically, it really struck me because when you said, "Oh, Hong Kong protesters—they all want independence." Joshua Warren's the leader; he's behind this whole thing. That almost sounds like something that the Global Times would is is publishing. You know what I mean? <laughs> like this kind of very simplified、um, version of the story is. It's not that just the the Western media that's、um, accused of cherry picking, but also if you look at that. That's kind of a lot of people. What a lot of people are thinking about Hong Kong inside China when they only read state-owned tabloid. So, really, the lack of nuance is harmful. You, that's pretty obvious if you think about how both sides are trying to paint the the picture with very broad brushes. And in order to be a better news consumer, first of all, I think that's a great. Great thing. You really want to. Most people probably just know one thing about the Hong Kong protest that it's the anti extradition bill, and that's it. But if you do want to do that, I think it's a good place to start to follow some authors. Know that、um, they have started covering this protest from day one, and they really understand what are the turning points, how this movement has changed in the three months' time,、um, and just pick a few people and follow their coverage, and then follow this publication. Coverage, build sort of like a whitelist for yourself. I, I suppose that's my way of、uh, 
uh, following very complicated news events these days. And I know in China Storytellers, you made a point of also highlighting, I'm forgetting all the author's names, but it was in the New Yorker. It's about a, a China global, global daily, daily. <laughs> yeah, College Daily is the name of the publication. Yeah. College Daily. Yeah. Do you know, happen to know the author so we can shout her out? Uh, yeah, the, the author of the New Yorker piece is Zhang Han, Han Zhang, yes, or Han Zhang. For how people consume news in China or that story in particular, why did you want to highlight it? Uh, and in highlighting it, what is sort of the larger story you, you're trying to link that up to with how news is consumed and questions about how news should be consumed or could be better consumed in China? Right. Um, so the, what's interesting about College Daily is that a lot of its audience is based in China. They, you, can, you can say that they don't have access to um, Google, they don't have access to New York Times and all these other more reputable uh, source, news sources. But actually, College Daily itself is called which means it's a, it's, it serves international students who live abroad. And then after they graduate, they serve this young professional, this uh, group of young professionals who live in places like New York, Boston, the Bay Area, um, in North America. But so, so these people, they, they, know, they know English. They can read the New York Times or they, they can read uh, the Washington Post if they want to. But the thing is that consuming news on WeChat, it's just so convenient. And it's a universe of its own that you don't have to leave WeChat and you can... Uh, you can leave comments, you can share. And so it's really a huge barrier to leaving this news environment, even though uh, College Daily is pretty notorious for not only making up stories, um, uh, misquoting people. It, it, it is not really a news organization, but it is serving the function of a news organization. So it's really confusing. And I also think that media literacy is not something that the Chinese education system has ever emphasized. And so it's natural for people to not be able to tell the difference. How does that affect things like Xinjiang or Hong Kong? Um, how it affects things like Xinjiang and Hong Kong is that they, they talk about these issues, but they cherry pick facts. The, the goal of College Daily and these WeChat account is to have as many clicks as possible so that after this first, you can publish three or four articles in one um, um, push so that more people will read their ads that are the second and third and fourth um, items in the push. So really like it's, it's, it's to get eyeballs, it's to get attention. They don't really care about having honest and open discussions about these really important issues. And also they want to be safe, right? They want to keep making money and they want to appeal to their audience in China so they will perpetuate what people already believe or what they think that the Chinese um, state media they don't want to be so different from, from what the state media are publishing. So if that's the case, is it possible to do good work in those institutions? Or if not, or you think it's, it's very difficult, what would be a recommendation of, of media in China that you think is doing a good job? Right. So <laughs> I have to say that College Daily, when, when it's at its most successful, is when it talks about when it, when it covers news that is very particular about international students, say this particular international student went missing or um, you know, involved in some kind of criminal cases, that 
uh, mainstream media is just not interested in covering and local media also are not interested in covering. That's when it's the most useful. But unfortunately now it's turned into something that's maybe doing more harm than good. And so I think we, if you want to read really, really good journalism within China, there are two sources that I highly recommend. One is called uh, Initian Media, Duanchuanmei. That's a Chinese language, um, Chinese language news website. And their newsroom is made up of uh, uh, journalists from mainland China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. Um, they have fantastic coverage of China, much, more, much, much more in-depth and nuanced than most of the things I'm reading about Hong Kong um, here in English. And then another one is Caixin. Uh, fair disclosure, I worked for Caixin, so I may be a little bit biased, but they do have a really great Chinese website. And if you have more difficulty reading the Chinese stories, you can also go to Caixin Global, which is the English version. And oftentimes the English articles are much shorter, much more condensed than the original Chinese ones, but they're still very good. Um, and then sort of returning to that preamble question I had for you at the beginning where we weren't recording, that James Bennett quote really annoyed me, where for me at you know, at least a, no bias means no bias. And you have the opinions editor, of perhaps the world's most powerful paper, saying we're capitalists, we're for capitalism. And I'm wondering, you, you've obviously thought very deeply about biases. You've had to, I'm sure, endure. I'm sure you're being very polite about some of the shit you've had to go through um, it, it, to get where you are. I'm wondering when it comes to these biases of Either nationalism, where, you know, we now have outlets like The Intercept, um, where they've sort of alluded to, to get the best access, you have to play ball, oftentimes, in terms of supporting the wa Washington's line, uh, along with sort of a more Chomsky-esque line of critique, where, look, if your boss is a billionaire, and you're writing columns saying, fuck capitalism, pardon my language, you're not probably going to get promoted at the Washington Post. So at times I get nervous with um, some of the journalists I speak with, and I'm very respectful that people can have different opinions, but I, I do like to ask with them, and, and I'd like to ask with you, do you think some of these implicit biases of, of nationalism in the U.S., as well as perhaps a preference towards capitalism or a deference because of who the bosses of the paper is, be it a, a Bezos or a Murdoch. Or do you think these are also biases that we need to do a better job questioning? Or do you think that, you know, no, that's just sort of the compromise we have for, for a liberal democracy? Mm, that's a really good question. I think there have been some responses to that, right? This idea that maybe journalism needs to be, maybe the, the answer is uh, publications like ProPublica. It, you know, like that, that might be the way we, we have to, uh, that may be the future of journalism because right now we haven't seen that many good solutions uh, to the problems that you've mentioned. I think ultimately it comes down to what the readers are demanding. Do they want their publications to um, serve them or serve the advertisers or serve their billionaire owners? And yeah. And is it, is it sort of when we read about China, we need to do almost a, a two-way mirror where when we're asking, okay, well, why are they framing it this way? And could this same criticism be leveled at us? So when we criticize Xinhua or the Global Times for being, you know, essentially at, people have gone as far to say a mouthpiece for the, the Chinese state. And then we have, uh, you know, a column that would be 
or a section of opinion week after week that's universally in favor of the Iran war or universally uh, slanted towards uh, in- intervention in a country like Venezuela with very little uh, arguments against that. Is that something where when we cover China and say, oh, China's nationalist or oh, China's being imperialist, that we should also be holding that mirror up to ourselves as uh, if we're Americans uh, being uh, a country that can behave in a very similar way. I think that's a healthy habit. And I honestly think that the type of thinking that you're having is what makes this system work better. You know, it's to, to look at the problems that we're accusing others of having and then asking ourselves if we're having the similar problems. But because but I don't want to go as far as to say it's the same thing. It is definitely not the same thing. The idea is that Xinhua and Global Times will only publish one type of opinion. There's only one type of voice. Sure, that type of voice might have its, you know, its, its equivalence here. But the important thing is that there is still a marketplace of ideas and other ideas are still able to not only be voiced, but also float to the top. I, I, there is still a very big difference. I wouldn't say it's the same thing. But yeah, it's a great habit to have. <laughs> Sure. Um, I mean, like Kiki Zhao's work and uh, Chen Lu's work is brilliant in terms of, I think, trying to address some of these biases. All right, I'm going to ask something extremely weird because I wrote it and I said, this is weird. I like asking people weird things. It makes their day sometimes. So we have this sort of trade war, right, going on. And I got to thinking because China this week or this two weeks ago, sometime this month, they have, they have strategic pork reserves of, of tr- billions of tons of frozen pork that they can release when pork prices get too high um, because pork is such a central meat uh, within China in terms of what people consume on a day-to-day basis that it has huge impacts on uh, the economy and daily spending habits uh, of, of Chinese citizens. Um, so I wanted to ask, let's say the trade war Tomorrow, for whatever reason, China says we're banning Disney. So there's no more Disney. All Disney products are, are canceled. There's no more Universal. All Universal products are canceled. Anything from the West is is banned. I'm wondering for, for China, are we seeing, you know, I see things like the, the one of the, the most popular anime in Chinese history is was produced locally about, uh, about a Chinese folktale. Um, we see um, things like Wolf Warrior 2, which for a, to- for a while I think was the, the highest grossing film in Chinese history. Um, does China sort of, is it pivoting so just like it's trying to decouple itself or make itself, at, uh, it doesn't need to rely on the U.S. economically. Do you get a sense that um, there's like a strategic cultural reserve or that the state is very like we can release all this pork? So if we had to ban Disney tomorrow, do you think like we could flood what people are consuming culturally with domestically made products? Or do you think for what Chinese consumers want that this sort of imaginary West or this imaginary America is is so central to what a lot of people are consuming or, or what they're working hard for that it would be very difficult to just have a domestic culture industry within China? I have to really think about that. Um, I think that 
the Chinese government has always been careful about what they're letting in in terms of foreign uh, cultural influence. Maybe for a while it was more, yeah, sure, you know, the Hollywood movies, the, the Marvel, the, uh, all those things can have huge impact on domestic Chinese cultural, uh, pop culture, but it's not like the government hasn't made an effort to limit the amount of movies, that, that the number of movies that they uh, import. And um, they, you have evidence, you know, showing that uh, of the government trying to regulate even translation of uh, late night shows, of uh, comedies. Because for a long time, you know, I'm sure you've heard of Zimuzu, right? This kind of underground group of volunteers who are translating Western pop culture uh, into Chinese. And, and so that's, that's why an entire generation of people are feeling extremely nostalgic about friends, the same way that people are having the conversation here. And I find that very interesting and kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a great, good thing, but it is easy to kind of cut off that, you know, by cracking down on this copyright infringement. That's a pretty good excuse. That's a pretty good reason to say, yeah, we did not buy this, so you cannot translate it. Um, but if you continue down that road, sure, maybe it, it, it is, it is not hard to imagine that um, the American or European celebrities who voice uh, their political opinions about domestic issues on China will not no longer be welcome. You're starting to already see that, and, and I wouldn't say that's completely out of the realm of imagination. And there is enough of, big enough of a domestic uh, market, movie market, a TV show market uh, to sustain people. So to speak. I want to add, sorry, I want to add one more thing. Just uh, there's a lot of talk saying, oh, China's uh, soft power is growing. Look, Warrior, uh, Wolf Warrior 2 is, is, uh, is doing well here too. Or uh, the Chinese sci science fiction movie is having a lot of success here. But I want to say that, you know, when producers and movie studios in China make movies, f the first concern is whether this will be approved, whether they will even make it onto the big screens in China. And the market is so huge that they're not even that worried about pleasing audience overseas. That, that's maybe the secondary, even the, it's not a high priority. So it's not like China's making movies in order to make it, to grow its soft power here. Really, it's just thinking about its domestic market for now. Well, what soft power initiatives from China do you think have, have been successful and, and what have, have sort of confused you or in general, what is China's attitudes on soft power? Because I have no idea anymore. I have no idea either. I can't speak for China and their strategy of soft power. What I can say is a lot of the very blatant or very um, intentional efforts have not been successful because you can't, you can't, uh, you can't force yourself. You can't force others to think that you're cool. You know, <laughs> I don't think the raps. Yeah, you just have to be cool. You can't. Those propaganda rap videos are not. They're not good, <laughs> and we all have eyes and ears. We can we we can we we can tell. So that's that's not really working. So I don't know if uh, this idea of oh China's soft power is growing tremendously. I don't know where that's coming from. What did you think of Higher Brothers instead of saying fuck the police, saying yeah the police are awesome? <laughs> um, I don't know. I think a lot of people were shocked that they voice their support uh, in the aftermath of Hong Kong, which just shows you that they don't understand the rap scene in China nowadays anyway. Did, but did you get a sense of like, okay, so there's obviously a lot of artifice in culture everywhere, where you meet Chris Hemsworth, the actor, who's romantic and gorgeous and we want to hold us in his arms, 
if we met him in person, he might smell bad and fart and, you know, be a huge ass. Um, so obviously there's artifice everywhere in terms of, of, uh, of the movie stars and who we are. But, I mean, it's just, it would be so deflating to me if I was a rap fan of High Brothers. And I liked them, but it wasn't, you know, they weren't figures I idolized. But if there were these figures, and I understand in some of their songs that, you know, that like Made in China has undertones of nationalism. But uh, the party was afraid enough of the anti-authoritarianism of Chinese hip-hop to, to stringently regulate it for long periods of time. And I just don't... Do you have any sense from talking to um, fans of Loud Murmurs in mainland China about, like, disappointment where you have a, a group like Higher Brothers, these tattooed dudes who, you know, claim to be these anti-authoritarian badasses, when they say things like cops are cool, is there a sense of, like, just betrayal or that all of this is just not even real? Or is that sort of uh, doubt always present um, when it comes to things like Chinese celebrities or, or sort of Chinese uh, media? Is there a sense that it can flip on a dime at any moment and that I can be saying, you know, fuck the police in one song and then the next month I have to be saying the police are great? What is that sort of um, flip-flopping do if you're, if you're a fan? That's the question I would like to ask the audience of Loud Murmurs. I haven't talked to anyone about it, but I do I do understand. I think people understand that it, at the end of the day, all these companies need to make money. It's pretty cynical, but the idea is would they want to give up the Chinese market in order to remain authentic? And the answer is probably not. And so the same goes for the whole boycott Mulan movement, right? Um, for a moment. Oh, explain that to me. I I didn't get that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so uh, Chris, Crystal, Crystal Liu, Liu Yifei is an A-list celebrity in China. Um, she's an American citizen. I did not know that until this, after she was casted to play Mulan in the upcoming movie, um, that she's actually an American citizen. I think that's, that fact is pretty downplayed um, in China. And then after Hong Kong, oh, she, I think she tweeted that I am with Hong Kong police, and that triggered huge backlash in Hong Kong and people started tweeting boycott Mulan on Twitter and that became a trending topic on Twitter. And so again, people reacted with surprise to say, how could she, you know, she's our Mulan. I look forward to this movie. This is my childhood memory. Now it's all ruined. Well, if you consider that her entire career is pretty much all based on in mainland, her fan base is mostly in mainland. She's probably not going to become an A-list celebrity in Hollywood. So, if you were her, would you want to upset the the market that's giving you all the success, or would you want to just retweet whatever the other celebrities in China are tweeting and call it a day? So, I think fans understand that, but I haven't really talked to anyone about it. Uh, I kind of hold a pretty cynical view when it comes to that. Well, I guess a, a, a good last question, well, uh, last two questions, I guess, is just for Loud Murmurs, because I'd like to center it, because it's such an invaluable research for Chinese students. To be honest, and this will come off as mean, maybe, it is so hard to find interesting Chinese language programs. I, you know, it is, unless you're really into YouTube, like Bai Chi Gongzu out of, you know, um, Taiwan or Zhe Chunren, like there's... There's nothing like you just are forcing yourself to watch recaps of Adventure Time in Chinese <laughs> or Dragon Ball Z. It's so like loud murmurs discovering that, especially after um, pop-up Chinese closed. 
I think for a lot of foreigners, that was like a, a, a gateway to more interesting conversations. But is it something where, what is the feedback both from the the mainland China audience? What is, what is the similarities and differences of, in your fans? So for someone like me, it's like, oh my God, you're talking about like uh, uh, yellow face and Orientalism in what once upon a time in Hollywood. Um, you know, this is really interesting, nuanced uh, discussions that are, would be very hard to find in any other context. So, you know, that's why I would like it. I, I would imagine other fans really like, you know, just getting a perspective from um, people who are world travelers. You, you describe yourself as a global migrant in your Twitter bio. So what are the fans like uh, that you see are similarities if it's mostly American or, or fans? And, and what are some of the mainland fans say? I'm so glad you asked me this question now because we just sent out a survey and we got hundreds of responses from, from China, from our Chinese uh, listeners. Some of them may not be living in China, but they um, write, they, they wrote their responses in Chinese. So now I can answer with uh, some confidence that what they think of our podcast. So our Chinese listeners are really happy that they have a group of people who are talking about um, the kind of movies and TV shows that they like which doesn't get a lot of coverage within China, the China's Chinese um, entertainment media, you know, like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But also it's telling them what to watch. It's telling them what is the hottest um, new piece of pop culture work here so that they can catch up. And one recent uh, comment under our One Child Nation discussion really moved me. This person said, well, it's I have been censoring myself for so long that listening to other people talk about so openly about investigative journalism in China, about the one-child policy and about this idea of loving your country and not your government gives me chills or sends me, it's, it's, it makes me feel things that I didn't know I could be feeling. And I believe that. I think some, we are also constantly aware of the possibility of being pulled off of our hosting platform in China, but we decided in, in the end that maybe they can do that. It's fine. If they pull it off, it disappears. But people who have listened to it have listened to it. You know, that if, if it reaches 10,000 people, that's great. If it reaches 1,000 people, that's still something. And this is, um, I was surprised that there are a lot of um, people like you who listen to our podcast, because really when we first made it, we thought we were making it for people who are more or less like us, who understand how a, a, a piece of work that's uh, considered American uh, is is received, how, how it will be received in China. We just want to talk about our thoughts. And we never think particularly that we have a Chinese perspective or we have to include a Chinese perspective in it because it's natural. We're Chinese. So our perspective is pretty Chinese. And we constantly think about how it's received here, how it's received in China. Why is there such a difference? And that's really what I think the most in, uh, people find the most interesting about our podcast. When it comes to some best practices, um, and it, again, they may be completely common sense to you, but you know we have a lot of dumb, white, sexist men working in journalism, even post Me Too. I mean, what what are some best practices you think for not? They don't need to be bad people either. Um, but in in journalism covering China, what would be some best practices? And then. You know, like we talked about for media, what would be some best practices or advice for listeners of this podcast who'd, who'd like to have a more nuanced approach to how they try to understand China? 
Yeah. Okay. One thing I can think of right now is when you write about China, just for a second, have this. Just for a second, maybe after you've written the piece, but hopefully before you've written the piece, think of this as a domestic story. Just assume for a second that you're not writing about a country far away that's maybe an enemy of America now. It, just assume that you're writing a story that's domestic. You're writing about the people who might be your neighbors, might be your friends' friends, friends' family, and then look at the piece again and really make the distinction that here this is about the this part is about how. Ordinary Chinese citizens are thinking and what they're doing, and this is the policy, the the regulations coming from the state or the state's intention. Try to try to separate the two, and really just, I think it's common, it's good practice in general to to do to to try to when you、uh, sorry when you write an international story, assume that you're not writing an international story. Still give provide the context, but. Do not assume that it's a story about faraway land, faraway land, and people who will never, any,、uh, who will never end up reading this piece or watching this video that you made about them. And any advice for for readers or、um, listeners of, you know, you don't just want to learn through a BBC doc, or、um, I'm trying to think what's another really, Mulan should you don't want Mulan to be the beginning and end of your. Uh, education in China. What what are some ways where, without being, it is intimidating, right? When you first wade into Chinese Twitter, and I'm not even talking about Chinese language Twitter, but literally just going through the hundreds of academics and writers. What what are some? What's a good platform outside of your own, or、uh, good advice for people who who want to consume Chinese media or China oriented media? In a way that is not、um, where they don't fall into some of the tropes or biases. Is, are there any sort of safeguards or sort of、um, prophylactics that you can have when you begin to try to learn more about China that won't lead you down a path of of bias or Orientalism or stereotypes that that ultimately would do more harm than good? So let's let's say this is let's do one for people who speak Chinese and one who don't. If you're Just an American, and you want to understand things. How can you do it, and what would be the difference from someone who was fluent? What advantages or ease would that person have? There's a, there's a huge difference because this still frustrates me that it's China's、uh, the culture, the good, the really brilliant creative works are not translated. It's very very hard to access for someone who doesn't speak the language. If you do speak the language, I would listen to Story FM, for example, this wonderful podcast. Uh, it's kind of like、uh, this American Life,、uh, just ordinary Chinese people coming on the show to share their stories, talk about their stories.、Uh, it's actually not about,、uh, not like this American Life. Then it's more like StoryCorps. So、um, that would be my number one recommendation because it gets you a little bit further away from politics, from all of the debates that we're having here, and just to understand what people are thinking and and whether what,、uh, what stories that are worth telling from people who are inside the country. Um, and then, if you don't, though, if you don't speak any Chinese, oof, I was just—I was gonna say Netflix shows, but they're so bad. I don't understand why Netflix buys so many terrible Chinese dramas. They're so cringy that I can't even finish watching any of them, or can't even start watching any of them.、Um, learn Chinese. I mean, your recommendation can be learn Chinese. Learn. Ch- <laughs> that's that's too much to ask for.、Um, 
Okay, yeah, I'm gonna have a hard plug for Chinese storytellers then, because um, read the newsletter, follow some of the people we constantly feature,、uh, follow their works. So I think it's great that、uh, we're entering an era where a lot of the post-90s generation of Chinese, a lot of women,、uh, are now here working in media, working in,、um, yeah, working in media who are producing great work, and they, yeah, they're more careful about how we approach coverage of China. Want to say something that has really annoyed me, and it just occurred to me. So let's say you get Elaine Yu on your show. Elaine, you know, has gone to great schools. Mary Huey is a great example too. You know, has thought about a myriad of issues,、uh, both in Hong Kong and China. But how they would appear on a media show is you're the China expert, whereas for the white host of that show, they can bounce around the world. Um, in terms of what they tackle and what they discuss, and so I, I think for me something that's important is okay. Yes, it's good to understand more about China, but I think for a lot of Chinese media, it becomes almost this prison that, without meaning to, a lot of media where historically it's been white or management has been white or the the, the faces that they put in front are white, where then that person becomes the quote unquote China expert. As opposed to no, this person can talk about a myriad of things. They don't just need to talk about China,、um, and so I, I hope for for media because you're starting to see more、um, programs like Amy Goodman or The Intercept or The Nation、um, feature really wonderful, intelligent women、um, to talk about Hong Kong. That it doesn't become like all right, Rosemary Marie Ho, you can only write about China. And I think that I don't know if you felt that, but is that something that a lot of your colleagues have have been irritated by? Of where, look, I went to Stanford or Harvard or Yale or Oxford. I can talk more. I can talk well about China, but I can also talk about other things. Yeah, I think there's a constant struggle.、Um, do I want to be pigeonholed to only write about China because I know more about it than a lot of people?、Um, And then also from just my conversations with fellow Chinese journalists,、um, there's sometimes this idea that we are not good enough to cover other stuff. There's still this idea that oh, okay, maybe my writing is not as good as a native person, a native English speaker.、Um, so it's 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 on both sides, right? But I definitely think that we are. It's okay to start here. Like I'd rather be. I'd rather see people like Mary Huey、um, on TV talking about China than someone who doesn't really understand China but just come just build their career as a China pundit. You know that's already progress. And then from there on, we should just give people oppor- the opportunity to write about to cover what they're really passionate about. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Isabel, it was a pleasure. Is there any?、Um, could you let people know where to find you and then? Um, just email me this this wonderful audio. Yeah, I would do that.、Um, you can find me on Twitter, M U G E underline N I U. It's my real name.、Uh, you can find me on Chinese Storytellers or download the podcast Loud Murmurs.